Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero. Fraser and I are here at Strathclyde University together for a special Christmas episode and we are delighted to say that Becky joins us remotely but still she's here with a festive drink in hand of I think tea actually but there you go. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh no wait, I've upgraded my, I've upgraded my tea to a glass of bubbly. Oh lovely. <laughs> um, but yes, it's hard to know where we're going to start with 2022. It's been an absolutely crazy year for all of us, for the world in general, and of course, for the energy industry. Yep, and we're delighted. Delighted might be a bit strong. We're, we're not completely <laughs> disappointed to be joined for this end of year celebration uh, by Manish Joshi, CEO of the Strathclyde Students' Union, and Jen Roberts, Strathclyde academic extraordinaire and longtime friend of the pod, both a key part of Local Zero 2022 canon. So as we did last year, this is a really good chance for us to take stock and discuss the key takeaways from this year. And we can then look ahead to 2023 with hopefully a fistful of optimism. So welcome everybody, guests. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here. We're recording at Strathclyde's Union, brand spanking new building. And we are in the recording booth, which is a real nice touch because I think it's fair to say this is the first time we've actually done this in a booth. So uh, thank you, Manish, for no, hosting no us. problem. Pleasure to have you all. Um, and it's good to be here in, with you all because um, I think it's fair to say 2022 wasn't a boring year. <laughs> Was anybody bored at any point? <laughs> I would give anything to just be bored. Just be bored, Just yeah. sitting on a chair, staring into the middle distance with nothing to think about. Yeah, it, it certainly wasn't boring. Um, and I think it's fair to say a formative year for, well, everything energy, everything climate we had, a COP, we had an energy crisis. We had an invasion of a European nation. We have had record energy prices. We've had record fuel poverty. We've also had record good news in terms of EV uptake, uh, people engaging with um, demand-side response, all the octopus saving sessions. So there's plenty of good and plenty of bad news. But I don't know whether, whether I can sort of spin around here and ask anybody if they, they want to kick off with what they thought was the most memorable moment of 2022 for energy, climate and all things green. I think it's been all, almost entirely for me, the, the energy crisis, the 
energy prices, the state of bills uh, in the UK. That, for me, has been the, the biggest game in town. There have been lots of other things happening, but the culmination for, for energy has absolutely been in this space. So we now have a, a situation where we, we don't want to start off on a terrible note because there, there's... Because we'll lose listeners. Yeah. <laughs> there's, optimi- there's optimism on the way at the end of this. At the end of this, but we are in a situation now where it feels like we've completely run out of control of energy, which is frustrating because we know we can make different choices, different decisions, to make energy work really, really well for for people and planet alike. Mm. But in terms of the the big news this year, I think that the energy crisis absolutely has has dominated in good ways and in bad. In bad, of course, record levels of fuel poverty, the the devastation that that's wrought on people, uh, socially, economically, as well as everything else. Um, But also in terms of now we're maybe considering what the energy system does and is for more than ever before. This, I think you nail on the head, Matt, it absolutely is a a formative Mm -hmm. moment for energy in this country. I feel like we've just been pushed to extremes this year. And I think, Fraser, you're, you know, starting off with talking about the energy crisis is, is one example of where we really are seeing things pushed to extremes in terms of the bills and the highs and flipping that on its head. For people that simply can't afford to that heat their homes now, there's really severe lows and, and what their homes are actually going to be like to live in. But if we just cast our mind back six months ago, we saw record-breaking high temperatures where you know, so I just feel like we are seeing from a climate perspective, from an energy perspective, we really have had quite a lot of extremes this year in terms of what people have had to face. Now, we've two esteemed guests in here who are who are very much on this subject matter. Um, Jen, Manish, <laughs> lovely to see you. Thank you for coming. If you were to reflect on 2022, and we're rather putting you on the spot here because we only just went up to the bar a moment ago to get some complimentary drinks from the union. Uh, and, um, <laughs> shh, not allowed to say that. Um, <clears throat> All right, you say, what's, what's the bot all about? Well, today we're looking at 2022. So I am putting you on the spot. This isn't prepped. If, if you reflect, what's what's been the biggest moments for you in terms of energy, sustainability and, and climate? Is there anything that really stands out? For me, I think what really stands out is the um, emerging um, narrative, I guess, of like, what has the government been doing? You know, we've just talked about these extremes from I mean, extreme highs to extreme lows. Um and and we've had decades of experts mm. advising policy, advising government to do more around retrofit, around insulation, around actually building homes that are fit for purpose. We've had decades of that. And the last few years, we've seen rumblings around, um, you know, Insulate Britain and so on, around people taking action about saying this really isn't good enough. And then what we've seen this year is like, do you know what? This is at, like you're just casting the decisions around um, not building certain forms of energy or not taking um, initiatives to insulate homes, for example, and just saying, look what you've left us with, look what you've done. And it's just really exposed some of the really poor decision-making that we've seen over the last decade. And lack of decision-making, Jen. Mm. Yeah, yeah, uh, the absence yeah. of any decision-making. I can be optimistic as well. I am an optimist, but that's, I think, the takeaway for me. Because in, in an optimistic like sense, it's actually, we're now seeing a wave of, like, if we if we have a wave of movement that's like, what has the government been doing? Then what you've got is an ask for action um, and a mandate for action. Mm. So I think that that spills over into appetite yeah. and desire for change and also absent necessity for change for people's well-being really. uh, and, and on that decision making sorry manager come right to you just on that point there sort of you know bad decision making or poor decision making a lack of decision making but also i felt there's just too much decision making like i was mm. you know i was retrospectively kind of looking back at the policy making around energy bills retrofit and there was 
there was a, a, a period of about six months between how many prime ministers? Mm. I haven't got enough fingers, mm. so autos. Well. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was just stream after stream after stream, almost just um, punch drunk yeah. from it. But, no. I, feel like, yeah. I feel like it's when my kids are trying to do something and they're really trying to look busy, so I don't actually ask them to do anything, but they're not really doing anything. <laughs> well, we've had, well, that's all we've had, though, this year in some ways. I think it builds on, on your point. Vicky and um, Jen in terms of there's just been a lack of leadership and there's a lack of mm-hmm. a strategy like you know you think we oscillate between are we having onshore wind we have an offshore wind what we're we doing around renewables there's this kind of mm. tension with the nuclear industry there I think people have got more educated than they've ever been on what energy means for them in a personal context but they don't know what's happening six months down the line. You know, everything's been kicked down the road. There's no long-term strategy in place. We are paying, paying the consequences of a lack of investment. Money was cheap five, ten years ago. Money's just got expensive. So for countries to borrow and invest in infrastructure projects mm-hmm. has now got more expensive. We've also got the fact that if we had insulated people's homes, if we had actually taken proactive measures in the last decade, people would be in a much better position than they are right now. And I think we're having to deal with the consequences of that when we've got... You know, we're opening the student union up as a warm bank. We're coming through a period of yeah. food banks, clothing banks, warm banks. You know, society has to somehow take a moment to go, how are we going to tackle the the structural inequalities and the issues as opposed to try to yeah. put sticking plasters? And there's just been a lack of clarity, I think, for people. I think a lot of people are now literally living in fear and mm-hmm. almost paralysis. For, for me, a big takeaway is that you kind of look back over the years as a scientist, albeit a social scientist, if we can... Still a scientist, Matt. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I've always liked you, man. It's been a bit like a controlled experiment in the sense of like we've had a year before where we we had energy bills or years before around this mark. And then you're like, right, what happens if we treble energy bills? You're like, ah, that's what government will do, or at least this government. Mm -hmm. And you're like, you know, when to turn the money hose on to sort this or that. And you then wonder, well, what does that mean for the future in terms of you talk about strategy, quite rightly? But once you once you kind of press a policy button, it's quite difficult to not press that again in the future. I think we saw that with COVID, actually. You do wonder whether some of the, the energy crisis response and that willingness to throw money at, at the problem, mm-hmm. which we can talk about whether through the right amount in the right way, but you have to say money was spent mm-hmm. uh, very quickly. Would that have happened on the back of COVID-19 in such a, a swift fashion? Without strategy, it was mm-hmm. knee-jerk. But they ha- yeah. in, in the fen- in fairness, had to move quickly, uh-huh. but couldn't move quickly enough, in my view. Yeah. Anyway, no, I, I would agree with that, and I, I think it's fair. And I think the the situation that people find themselves in now is as large scale. It is as deep, and it is as stressful and strenuous. And for a lot of people, this this is deadly as well. This is a crisis. Let's let's not beat around the bush. This isn't a, an extra pair of socks for the winter. This mm. is deep, entrenched destitution, a spiral of not being able to afford your, your bills, your rent, your mortgage, whatever it might be, as well as your energy bills. It's much bigger than that. What I will say on the other side of this, and Jen mentioned it briefly, Manish mentioned it briefly, is we're now at that moment in time where understanding of energy has never been Mm. never been greater among the public by necessity. People have had oh, to yeah. figure this out. The The wider consciousness is, is now fully attuned to what the energy system is, what it does, where things seem to be going wrong now. And I think what we have is a real widespread mass appetite for radical action, radical change. And I think that we don't want to spin this into just the positive. We have to take that with the context of all the, the terrible things that are happening as a result of this crisis. But that moment, that wider consciousness, that demand 
actually is a big opportunity to do something bigger and something bolder than we've ever done in energy before. And I think that's something that we have to keep in mind and keep the, the foot on the gas for. We do. And I think you're spot on, Fraser, that people are more engaged, they're more aware and they want to see change. And I think what we really need to start to see happening now is better models for around the finance, the business models and implementation, because the want is there. But regardless of that want, most people can't actually afford to make the changes. They might not have the agency. They might not own their home. They might not be the decision makers in their home or actually, I mean, Golly, this stuff's hard. You know, I'm I'm going through um, a phase at the moment of moving into a new home and, and gutting the ground floor, and I I have no idea half the things that the builders asked me, and the amount of research I've had to do just to try and understand and make decisions. And I work in this space, and so I feel like you're right that the engagement is we're starting to see that in the knowledge, but we need to find a way to actually support people to create these changes where they don't necessarily have the time, the capacity or the resources to do it on yeah. a home by home basis. Because it's becoming clear and clearer to me that those that do have the time and the capital to engage in this transition are, are starting to really reap the benefits of doing so. Now, I'll give you a classic example. The, the demand-side response mm -hmm. stuff that we've seen from the savings mm -hmm. sessions for those who've been with Octopus. It's not just Octopus, it's other, other suppliers as, as it stands. Those who'd already made the move to electrification, heat pumps, maybe they've got an EV, they're, they're hot water, they're cooking, all electrified. If they turn down or turn off for an hour or two, they've made some big savings for turning stuff down for you know, an hour or two. Now, you ask somebody who is unable to afford to electrify, somebody who's already consuming the bare minimum because they can't afford, and you start to see this, this gap starting to really emerge between the haves and the have-nots in the net zero transition. Absolutely. Yeah, inequality is really at the heart of a lot of this, right? And I think when you think about you've got those early adopters, you've got people who locked in prices on RHI and all kinds of stuff years ago, and it's the people who've got the means to do it, right? Even if you take you know those of us sitting in this room and who has an electric vehicle and who can afford to go and buy a new electric vehicle versus a second-hand electric vehicle and then that knowledge point that Becky talks about like you know my wife's an architect and there's all kinds of stuff that are going on in terms of building materials and things like that mm -hmm. but where's that capacity building piece that education piece like resourcing people to actually make good well-informed decisions when they do have a pocket money to spend when you've got maybe time to do some renovation in your house so you know you're making the right decisions and I think we're lacking in all of that information just now there's stuff starting to trickle through mm. I think but there's almost so much information that people don't quite know where to go and then there's a lot of there are still a lot of cowboys out there unfortunately too so like with heat pumps yeah. I was looking mm. at doing some work recently and you've got guys who come out and they'll just chuck in a couple of heat pumps for you but you know it's not the right thing because your property is really leaky and drafty and it's actually never going to work so yeah. it's making sure that we've got good quality standards in this space as it develops and just on the engagement point, because we, we have a leading expert in, on engagement in the room with, with Jen. And Jen, do you think we're engaging the public at the moment around net zero? I mean, this, this year, you could argue that energy prices have, and energy in general has, has moved into the national conversation in a way it hadn't previously. If we were sat here this time last year, I would argue we, you know, we are streets ahead in terms of it now being something that you see on the news, 
breakfast TV, you see it in the papers and on social media. But are we actually engaging? Like, or are we, yeah. is it just kind of happening and people are looking at it? And is this good practice like a bonfire, engagement? You know? Like, is really yeah. putting people into an incredibly difficult positions actually engagement or is it survival? Right? Mm. You know, really, is it is a good engagement? Um, it's a really good question because to be engaged, that's only one part of the issue, or the, the you know, that's only one part of actually being able to to take action. You can engage people, but without actually allowing them or enabling them to take any action, to do anything, whether, I mean, even just the, the fact that we're framing it around an individual taking action, that's not fair. We need to be that it's not about taking action. It's just that the choices that are available, that are sensible, are the sustainable ones, right? Mm. And I'm just thinking, I can reflect, like, on, on my own experience as well. Like, you, you, you can... So I've been sort of foraging around into like some of the technical aspects of um, heating our home and and things like that. But I, I don't massively enjoy it. I'm privileged that I can do that, but I don't enjoy it. But it actually comes out of a form of necessity to calm myself down about the climate crisis because you just sort of put it into your own, okay, what can I do about it? You know, and, and just thinking about that we've made some inroads and in progress, but actually it shouldn't shouldn't really be be me um doing that and um another kind of big um milestone for me this year was going car free as a mountain lover and adventure person um got rid of the car in in april um and i did some maths in preparation for this episode <laughs> to work out because <laughs> everyone asked me about the finances of this like what's the financial implications of being car free um and i think i mean overall i can i guess the headline news is that i've had multiple um adventures to countryside and taken multiple trains with bikes on and sat around at train stations while the trains don't turn up because of all the issues of the railways um, and I've had you know a really great adventure sense in that in that you know over the last year um, and ultimately I am uh, I have more money in my pocket because the car in the end mm. cost more um, when you take it all in um, but it's not much more and the only reason why it's not much more is because I would take the train for long, de- long mm. journeys anyway which is really expensive so actually you can like you can try and take these actions um, because you're engaged on an issue. But the fact, I mean, I'm still spending £1,300 on trains in a year, you know, to do yeah. the things wow. that I love. And that's huge, yeah. absolutely huge. So I think that's, you know, I'm using a personal example to talk about what we really mean by engagement. Engagement is very different from empowerment. So people might be engaged on this issue more now than ever because of the gas crisis, because of climate crisis. Mm. But actually, are we then, the, the, the trick is, to turn that into empowerment. There's, mm-hmm. there's something kind of insidious underneath all of this, I think, which um, is, is this idea that when the energy crisis struck, I noticed a lot of people went directly into what should I do about it rather than what should we do about it. Mm-hmm. Or actually, sorry, it was what should I do about it or what should they do about it, but not necessarily what we should do about it. And it started to make me very worried about net zero in general, that there was this idea that there's, there's little me and then there's that big thing state and industry and there was a real big gap about something in between which we've seen organizations and i would include the students union in in this but you know many of the community organizations which we're involved with um but i I completely take your point jen is that it was like you know you can't do it on your own but it's a coping mechanism Mm -hmm. yeah but it's Mm -hmm. it's kind of it's also part because the the tool and the, the toolkit and the repertoire that we have at our disposal is either i or I can do, or that will be done to me, or 
But this is, this is why we need to think more broadly as well. I've been asked this question probably a thousand times about individual action. And I think that's a, that's a thing. We're much the same. Everyone in this room, I'm sure, has tried to do something about it. But whenever I've been asked this question, the, the important thing, I think, is to remember that we're not, and I think Monbiot has said it umpteen times, we're thinking less as consumers and more as citizens. Mm. So thinking about building social relationships, thinking about building mm. the sort of coalition that you need to hold leadership to account to act in the way that they need to. Coalition building, working across the different, different industries, different sectors, citizens, government together working on solutions is critical. But if you're thinking about what can I do individually about stuff, for me, the, the best bang for your buck that anyone can get involved with is to have those conversations in their communities and build those networks as far as possible, which helps with you know community resilience, which helps, I think, or in my experience at, at least, a little bit more with that empowerment side to build something capable of holding the people with the sort of levers of power to account to, to lead in the way that we ultimately need them to lead. When we say, Becky, when you rightly say, only so many people can make these choices, not everyone can make these choices, that's where you need that leadership, and that's what we haven't had this year in the slightest, is leadership on this. Mm -hmm. To not just make the choice obvious for people who can afford it, but to lead uh, on people who can't afford it to help support them in that transition as well. That's the way that it ultimately, I would argue, needs to be done. And I think the social side of it, when thinking about what can I do, what can we do, yeah. is just as crucial mm -hmm. as chucking up a solar panel, buying mm -hmm. an EV, anything else that you, you might have the capacity to do in your life. This idea of collective action is so important and acting within our community. So I think that you're right. There's a role of kind of individual, I guess that consumerism role, because we are still consumers, you know, and we have a power of choice. We are citizens and we, you know, there is an opportunity there. But I always um, think back, Fraser, to some of the work that you did in your uh, PhD, which which will soon become a PhD, right? You're going to say it on Local Zero and then it will be true? I am never committing to that publicly. It will be done when it's done. It'll be a nice surprise for me as well as everyone else. <laughs> but I think back to some of the work that you did looking at, you know, uptake of PV solar at the individual household level and then at the community level and that community scale sort of unlocking and empowering people who might not be otherwise empowered on that individual level. But it also gave people something to kind of gravitate and come together around. And for me, I find that that is... A challenge that I experience. So I, I know how to act as an individual and I know how to act as an individual citizen, but I'm still acting individually, even though in that kind of yeah. citizen perspective. What I find much harder is to find the things that can stimulate action within the community around the right space. And, and that for me is where there's a huge amount of opportunity that we're probably not tapping into at the moment. Yeah, community action for me is the heart of the solution for a lot of these things. And I think we've got a massive opportunity because people have had enough. The amount of industrial action we are seeing right now, I've never seen it in my lifetime, you know, and I think we're at a tipping point potentially where if we can build some of that solidarity amongst communities, and it has to go beyond communities, because actually I, I was a part of a conversation this week where a nurse was moaning about teachers, and I was like, you need to stop because that's what they want you to do. They want you to turn on each other, but actually, you know, it's about trying to get to a point where we can come together but we also need to try and build that common cause. And I think that's sometimes what's missing. People are fighting for their own battle within their own sphere of influence, but actually how can we join it up? And how can we make some tangible changes for people in communities? And I think, you know, Matt, you're involved with South Seeds and I think they do some amazing things. Mm -hmm. And it's that opportunity to maybe join that up with some other things like community meals. So get people around a table, eating together, mm -hmm. sharing ideas, looking at some of the bigger things. 
we try to do that today with students. We brought a whole group of students in to give them a meal and send them off. But you're hoping that's going to spark some ideas and some connections. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've got to find out, figure out ways that we can do more of that. Because I think whilst I'm optimistic, I also recognise that people are pretty downtrodden. Like we've come off three years of a pandemic where there's ongoing anxiety constantly around the climate crisis, inequalities at record levels. Like people are feeling vulnerable. So how do we strengthen them? How do we give them like a bit of an opportunity to kind of go into that next stage of the journey? And I think that that for me is a big question I'm taking into 2023. And Manish, do you? I just want to manage. Do you find that the students that you that engage with this are, are they students that might not otherwise be engaging in this space? Like, do you find that by doing these these um, kind of you know actions that are happening at that collective level, are you sort of spreading the spreading the energy joy? I'm not. You know, I'm not entirely sure. If I'm being totally honest, I think we're trying to hold space for people. I think, and facilitate space and create spaces for people. What they then go on to do with those spaces, I think, mm-hmm. depends. But like we've probably the most engagement we've seen from the student body this year has been around gender-based violence, which I know isn't mm-hmm. directly related to what we're talking about, but at the same time is an inequality issue, is you know, is an issue around that affects women. And so that's probably been the area we've seen the most um activism from the student yeah. body. There's definitely that low drumbeat level in terms of climate and sustainability, but I wouldn't say it's as visceral as what we've seen around something like 16 Days of Action and things like that. I was just going to come in about the, um, the engaging, kind of creating spaces to engaging with communities. And I was thinking kind of off the back of the energy crisis that we've mm. seen, we've seen um, a real growth and a spark in things like the community-led retrofit sort of communities across the UK um, and across Scotland. And I think that that's where, you know, we've got this kind of interplay between, you know, bottom-up approaches we know are most effective. You know, they bring a number of co-benefits as well with that. But you need to resource and enable Mm -hmm. those. So there's a kind of a bit, you know, even creating spaces for for conversations requires those spaces to to be there, to be enabled. So I think we're starting to see, if if there's a positive to take away as well, it's actually that we've started to see that coalesce coalescing action and with that you've got you know community groups learning from each other like not just within that 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 particular community but across communities too and that's really critical and it's really critical for holding people developers agencies into account as well and I think Mm -hmm. that's where like there's a real role for that kind of connecting up communities Mm -hmm. to to as I say hold people to account to say what's acceptable what's not acceptable and I think if I may I think we might see this going forward a bit as well in now we're talking at the very local level here, or homes and houses or um, the places where we study and so on. But there's also, we've seen a bit of a shift in some of the industrial decarbonisation, the kind of the big infrastructure developments as well. Like you're really looking at the people, place and planning, the kind of sharp, pointy end of, of these developments. And and if like for me, anyway, I feel like it's been a, quite a growth in that, in emphasis and importance on that people place you know what does this mean for communities how do we ensure that these transitions are fair and just how do we take people with us and i mean it's the the answers don't have the answers at the moment there's a decades of learnings that we can draw on from that um but ultimately working with the communities is is has to be at the forefront of that yeah i've written so much down those (laughs) various points so i just want to kind of come back on a couple um this this notion of having a shared problem tackled with coordinated action to deliver a shared solution is something that I think runs under all of this. I think we're probably 
not all of us, but many of us are waking up to the fact that these are shared problems. Climate change, cost of living. It's not just affecting me, it's affecting you. I think there's less awareness to, to, to tackle that shared problem. You need coordinated action. And that can then yield a shared solution or shared benefit. And so linking these up, I think, should be, in my view, should be a priority going into 2023 and beyond. And a big part of that journey is connecting communities, is to put in place these partnerships between local actors, not just like the Union where we are now, but also with Glasgow City Council and the university, to have these, these actors uh, together. And then underneath all of that is this engagement. And one of the things that keeps coming back to me is that whenever you hear one of the responses, and we, we're seeing this reflected actually on COVID and a lot of the money that was wasted on PPE, and a lot of the response around this was, well, we had to make decisions quickly. My point is, can we do engagement during a crisis? Um, how do you do engagement during a crisis? Because that's we're in like multifaceted crisis. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. should, in my view, means you shouldn't just not engage with people. You shouldn't be asking communities what they want and what have you. But how do you do it? And there is a wider question about whether it's a crisis of of our own making, but I'll, I shall leave that. But engagement during a crisis, what does that look like? Because we're kind of in this omni, like, you know, self-perpetuating <laughs> period of crisis, yeah. so what do we do? I think I think you've got to have a two-way dialogue there. I think it's about giving as well as taking. Because I think sometimes when you ask people to engage, I think, right, they want my time, they want my resource, they want what insight I can give them. Mm-hmm. And I think when we're doing that, how can we also be making sure we're giving something back to people? So whether that is helping with capacity building or providing some resource, whether it's small pockets of financial resource or whatever it is to um, help stimulate ideas or to try and move things forward. But I think it has to be a two-way thing. I don't think it could just be about, well, come to us and we'll just kind of take, take, take. Because I think we do that. We do that a lot with students, don't we? We survey mm-hmm. we survey them constantly through the year and we yeah. ask for their opinion in that. Like, what do we actually give them back? Like, you know, And I guess some of that we try to do at times when we're like, here's a free meal or here's a space for you or like today we handed out loads of goodie bags to uh, young people from winding access backgrounds who may not get something over the Christmas period. So it's, it's that sense of building that relationship and making sure it's a two-way thing and not just all about taking mm. from people. Well, totally. And it's like about what's that engagement for, right? What are you engaging <laughs> for? Because if that engagement doesn't have a purpose and why are you engaging? Mm. <laughs> and I think that there's like a, you know, if you're engaging, I mean, there's so much stuff going on. We're in, we're in crisis mode. How would you engage on the stuff that, that isn't at the forefront of people's minds? Um, should we be? Like, actually, is there a way that we can engage or align the engagement to really deliver on the stuff that is really mattering to people? Because there is a net, there is a linkage, you know, as you said, there's connections between all these issues. And if we know that some of the the, the actions or solutions or the, the, the ways forward that if we know that they can deliver on some on reducing yeah. some of these other immediate needs, then that's where we need to be. It needs to not be engaging on something that actually is not at the forefront of people's minds. It needs to be engagement um, that is a kind of allowing to work out what are the things at the forefront of their minds and how can we deliver on that as a collective, as a whole? I'm not trying to be all motherhood and have apple pie. No, but, here, but right? it's, it's a good point. But I, I mean, how, how do you deliver connected... Sorry, I'll give away on this, on, on this point. Just how do you connect these crises together when I, people can only often have one crisis at the forefront of their minds at once? We've seen this. A lot of people have just said, oh, well, you know, COVID's been and gone. Obviously, it hasn't. And it's just like, hey, cost of living crisis now, that's the priority, mm-hmm. you know. So I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully somebody's got the answer because I agree they all connected in 
we'll yeah, we, another. Uh, I actually do have the answer. We'll just we'll, great. We'll okay, brilliant. Right, and then we can go. But no, I, I think Jen's point is absolutely critical. I think we've got a really bad, and it, it combines what Manish had said as well. I think we've got a really bad habit of engaging on our own terms. I say our own, but anyone who does sort of policy engagement doing it on your own terms, rather than going to people where they are and thinking about what they care about. The two points that I would add to this. The first one is this idea that justice or a just transition or doing this fairly somehow has to take longer than just getting it done as quick as humanly possible. We've, Jen mentioned before, we've got decades of research to build this on practitioners who have doing this, been doing this for a long, long time. It doesn't necessarily have to take much longer, but even if it did, point number two is that if we don't engage people, go again, go to people where they are, deal with the issues as they see them and bring them along, then you risk it being patchwork and you end up in the same situation one, two, five, ten, 20 years down the line. You do it right one time meaningfully, not one time, but on an ongoing basis. But if you do it meaningfully, bringing everyone meaningfully along around the table, then I think we have a much better fist at doing this sustainably for a longer term solution that genuinely works for people, I would argue. I want and I want to tap into that idea of the longer term solution, because I think that if you're looking for this transition and, and ultimately we do need to look at what we are. A lot of this transition is going to require a, a technology shift in some capacity or another. Mm. It's not all about the technology, but we are fundamentally talking about getting off of gas. Right. That means clean heating. That means clean transport and so on. And if we want that to stick, we need to find solutions that are actually better for people, right? Not just the same, not just like maybe a teeny bit cheaper, but actually work better, that are appreciated, that people really value. And I, I want to bring up a personal experience of where I think that this is completely falling to pieces, and that is with EVs. And um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, and the reason that I'm in London is that I have just driven up to Oxford, which is where my brother lives, and uh, gotten rid of the EV. So oh. we were lucky enough to have an EV. We had it on a as a lease vehicle. And um, I love the car. I can't fault the car. And when we were driving around, so when I, when I was living in a place where I could have um, a charge point in front of the house, I could do my charging, you know, 99% of the time at home was the most wonderful car. I've moved. I now no longer have a charge point at home. So first of all, it is expensive to charge your car at public charging stations. It is a four, it's, it's almost it's it feels now. like it's almost the same as petrol, honestly. It's expensive. And almost all of the charges that I go to, I would say more than 50% of the time are broken. My husband drove around for over an hour one night a few weeks ago to find the charger. And when he eventually got to one, he had 3% charge left on the vehicle. Range anxiety is real in places. <laughs> yeah, that's adventuring yeah, of a different thing. Oh my, so, so we've just gotten rid of that. And here's the, here's the thing. It's nothing to do with the cars. It is completely to do with the infrastructure that the government have just left to the market to deliver. Every single driver that I've spoken to at a public charge point has said they wish they'd never got an EV and wants to switch back to a petrol car. And I think that this is a disaster because what we're doing is we are building an EV infrastructure that is only fit for the people that live in homes where they do short journeys that have a garage. Do you know what? They're the people we want to get into public and active transport, not the EVs. And we are not designing a solution that is equitable, that is going to work for people in rural areas. You know, it is it's unbelievable, yet we expect to see this shift happening, but the solution is not better and it could be better. And we really need to see 
government stepping in, not necessarily delivering oh, it, they, but they, my they, God, do you know do you know how many Tesla charge points I go past that have no cars there that I can't use because I don't have a Tesla? Yeah. Oh, I well, oh, to be fair, keep going they, on with the they, rant, but I'll stop for a minute. They did cut five pence off fuel duty, so, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that ought to do it. <laughs> <laughs> So, I, well, I think it's a really interesting point. So this is where there's kind of something which was a, or is, I think I feel it is a huge success story, what's happened in terms of EV uptake. But, you know, this notion of transitions kind of derailing, what do we think about that? Is this something that we're, I mean, Jen, you've you've sacked the car off altogether. Well done, you. But, <laughs> yeah, um, but I mean, this is entirely in line with like this, what we've seen, for, I mean, Manichelli, you mentioned heat pump, heat pump installations and yeah. heat pump engineers. And if we don't have, like in that case, it's about, you know, having the skills in place, the pipeline, a diverse pipeline of people with those skills to be able to implement these things properly so that you're not actually driving inequity um, and not leaving people in, in the lurch, you know, with an un, like a, a heating system that doesn't work for them, always constantly breaking and so on. And this is similar. I mean, if we don't make these choices that, that we, first of all, give people a choice because at the moment there's just not a choice for many mm. people. And second of all, if we don't make these choices actually appealing either because they're not, you know, we don't have that skills pipeline in place, which, you know, by the way, we did foresee. We just didn't, action was not taken. Um, and, you know, where there's EV charging structures and so on. Um, I mean, to some extent, stuff like that, it's so frustrating, but it's also like, do you know what? We just need to fix it. It seems quite easy. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, uh, we can fix that. <laughs> it's very, very annoying, but it seems very uh-huh. fixable. Feel, it feels fixable. Right? It feels like feels like Becky has put the EV in room 101, and I feel like I want to try and save it from room 101 because it feels like it's a, the, the car doesn't seem to be the problem. Yeah. It's no. the infrastructure around it. And I guess you talked about rural situations, but I kind of walk around Glasgow <clears> and look at tenement flats where I'm like, there's about maybe eight vehicles in that one property and there is certainly not enough space to charge all that. And I think so. I think it's both a kind of town and country challenge in terms of how do we build the infrastructure? Yeah. And also, the, I think the main thing, especially for those of us who live in cities, is how do we encourage people to get involved in active mm-hmm. and public transport? Mm-hmm. Like, that is the key. Yeah. Like, I have a big van. Uh, I, have, I have a lot of children. Sorry, climate. Um, but but we <laughs> Which only... Which from memory was the yeah. worst thing we could do. Yeah. <laughs> but we only use the vehicle if we have to go on a, on a reasonable trip out yeah. of town or something. So we, everything we try to do is with, either within walking distance or cycling distance on the whole. But, you know, I don't feel we've got the infrastructure there to really support no, people. So it's fixing that bit for it, me. It's this classic point where, I mean, the reason it's been such a success story, in my view, has been that the, the, the car is the car. The car is a success because you've had all these massive auto, you know, mobile manufacturers have gone at this. Harren and Tong have figured it out and it's incredible what they've done. And it's just, it, it is an easy like-for-like replacement. You sell your petrol car and you get a battery car. Now, not not without problems, Becky, you've outlined and hit everything on uh, nail on the head. Um, but it's a success. Now, the question is, do we need the car? What's the alternative? I think that's this is where net zero gives us an option to kind of reinvent normal because normal isn't working for everybody. Mm-hmm. Now, you only need to see that in terms of people who can't afford the car and have to get the bus, right? And the bus is expensive. I've been having to rely on, a lot, rely on it a lot more, you know, with the, the trains being down, expensive, unreliable. I mean, once it's out, it, you know, fantastic. But in terms of, you know, a whole host of other things we've talked about, if, if you know, if, if like flight replacement, maybe not quite right because normal isn't working. Just ask the people who've had their heating off or gas capped because they're not mm-hmm. heating their, they can't afford it. Yeah. So is, is there an opportunity to, to revolutionise normal? Is that what net zero's, you know, here to do? 
what if we squander this opportunity is what I'm kind of worried about. Mm. <laughs> I, I breathed in the first then, but I guess I was going to kind of come back a bit and say, well, the normal isn't working. So normal drives us to unhealthy lifestyles and ways of living, right? So we need to not replicate normal. Mm. We need to do better. And that's what Net Zero allows. That's that opportunity. It may not be a revolution. It may not feel like a revolution to many. Many people don't want that. They just want to get on with their normal lives. Mm. But what normal means can be so much better. It can be a quiet revolution, but it, yeah, it can certainly deliver on, on multiple good things for the future. And I wonder about the framing as well. Like we talk about net zero and it's become this buzzword, I would say, in the last mm. five years to kind of mean lots of different things to different people. But I think for lots of ordinary people, mm. it doesn't really mean a lot. And I think what we've seen this year, unfortunately, even in Scotland, where in the past we've been able to fly the flag on what we're doing, but there's a climate change committee has come out and told Scotland that we're not on yeah. the right pathway and doing the things we want to do. And so I actually wonder sometimes if we need to change the frame a little bit and the narrative around how we talk about this to the wider public. Because it is, for me, it's a chance to revolutionise society as we know it. Mm. But I think calling it net zero leaves it in the hands of policymakers and car manufacturers and uh, Musk and various billionaires to actually tell us what we're to do but actually this is a real chance to change the entire fabric of society and I'm not sure people are fully on board with what that means it looks like and the opportunity that's in that There's also a chance with them net zero to do some funny balancing of the books with carbon so yeah, actually to mean absolutely. that you know on a very large yeah. industrial scale we don't do very much as uh-huh. well Well I, I think this is we're kind of moving into more positive territory which is great because it's near the New Year's resolutions yeah. time and I'm <laughs> making a few notes but I don't know. I'd like to ask the question about 2023. What are our hopes and fears? And you can include 2024, or even 2025. In I'll give you a two-year horizon, maybe three. Um, When's the next election? Don't. I, yeah. That's what I was alluding to, Fraser. Anyway, I couldn't possibly comment. Um, yeah, what are we hoping for? Because I think we've outlined some stuff that really needs to get done. Okay, but what do you hope for in the context of, of that? Are you looking at me? Well, Sorry. I am looking at you, Fraser, because you're, you're normally full of it on this. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't think I'm hoping for anything that hasn't already been said. I think we are at this formative moment. On net zero and with the, the crisis just now, again, not to try and put too positive a, a spin on things, but I want to see serious radical action. I want to, want to see us harness the momentum that is currently at large in the public, evidenced by the growing um, present concern around energy bills, cost of living, by the action that's been taken around industrial action like the strikes, I want to see that harnessed fully to turn it into and seize the, the, the kind of opportunity that, of the moment that we're in. Because it feels like we've hit that watershed now. Again, by hook or by crook, we've hit it, where maybe we don't fully understand what net zero means, but we understand that we have to be doing something about climate. You look at any poll, Servation, Opinium, Ipsos Mori, in any corner of any community in the country, there is majority support for action on net zero, for a low-carbon society to try and seize that opportunity. If we're willing to do it fairly, maximise all the benefits that are on offer, and those benefits are enormous if we can get it right. I would like to see us think on that scale about things, not tinkering around the edges of the mm. energy market and renewables reform, all that kind of stuff. That's important, that's the nuts and bolts, but think on that big scale because we have a, a once in a, a generation, I would argue, opportunity to do something truly, truly massive for people and for planet. And my only only wish for 2023 is that we don't squander that and that we really, really push the button as far as possible. Yeah. He really is full of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Six mouthfuls of No, beer. listen, I would certainly have vote for that. Six absolutely. Of I also feel like I do with a little like <laughs> <laughs> the 
<laughs> I feel like I could do like a little Fraser quote per day mm, just to yeah. keep me yeah. just I felt like 2022 has yeah. been very challenging like in terms of trying to keep the positives and it's like just, just get a bit of get uh-huh. a bit of Fraser positivity <laughs> please <laughs> It does, it does. Sorry, go on, man. I was going to say, just reflecting on what Fraser said, it feels like the stars could be aligning. Yeah, I mean, there are there are multiple crises. But your point about industrial action in reaction to cost of living crisis, this awareness of issues relating to hydrocarbons, gas, right? Just the public generally. If you ask them why are energy prices high, they'll talk to about geopolitical instability and mm-hmm. gas, right? And 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 then, but there's also seen there's this something underneath everything. There's this appetite for somebody to fix it and make things better. But I, I'm take your point, Manish. What does better look like? And I don't feel like I've been sold that vision yet by anybody in particular. I think it's starting to come out from certain political parties. But we rely a lot on our politicians, don't we? But I think we've got to also build a, like, a coalition of the willing on this one. It can't just be up to politicians to sort this problem because they are short-termist creatures by their very nature. They only look at a five-year horizon. So yeah. we need... I think, like, my aspiration is for wide-scale radical citizen action, right? Whether that's more citizens' assemblies, whether that's people gathering together, just coming together to break bread and just talk to each other. I think there's a, this real sense, if we can break isolation, so I think community and connection for me are so vital mm. in 2023 because mm. I feel it's something we have lost because of the pandemic, but because of lots of other things in society. And I think if we can do that and start to really reach beyond the usual suspects. So start to talk to the people that wouldn't normally engage in things because they are, they are primed. They're ready. I think they're ready for a cause. They're ready to get behind something. You know, and I think that needs NGOs to get together and look at a, a large scale campaign. You know, we don't have a key moment. We don't have another big cop moment. I know there's cops every year, mm-hmm. but the next one's in Dubai. So if we thought Sharm El Sheikh was challenging, I think uh, mm-hmm. one in the UAE is going to be pretty, pretty tough. But you know, there's not that kind of real, real moment or anything to galvanise people. Just come out of a kind of other UN summit on biodiversity, mm-hmm. but we need to maybe create some moments in the next year, um, in the run up to 2024, in this country at least, where we can start to really ensure that there is political change, but that they've got a mandate from the people to actually move into space. I think we need to create more space for our political leaders to move into mm-hmm. because right now there's probably a lot of triangulation going on. They're just trying to win those red wall seats back yeah. and things like that. So. I think if we can get organised and get people out there, and it doesn't always mean you have to be out in the streets. I think when I talk about radical action, that, that can be different things yeah, for different people. Right. And I think it's making sure that people understand yeah. there's a plethora of activity there. So, Becky, Jen, what, what's on your Christmas wish list for Father Christmas? As I keep being corrected by anybody who's Scottish, Santa is just nobody knows who Father Christmas is up here. <laughs> <laughs> Look at me blankly. I, I basically massively agree with you, Fraser. I think we need to, I mean, we're in this critical crunch point to me to not let this opportunity slide. I hate the use of the word opportunity here, but we, it really is. And underpinning all of this crisis and under, or overlying all of it is climate crisis, is climate change, mm-hmm. is what we're seeing. And I think in the in the same way as like driving, understanding of actually what, what climate change actually looks and feels like, we need that same around what better looks and feels like. Um, in many cases, the sort of change we need to implement is a change that people want for it's a better future anyway. But it's about really understanding and sharing what that better looks like. I'm trying to think of an actual proper Christmas present, but um, I'll go to Becky. An electric it. bike. Well, you've brought some, you've brought some <laughs> mince pies to me, fairly you, Jeff. So you've made a good start. A real car. Some uh, vegan oh, real vegan car. <laughs> I'm going to come to you, Becky, um, in a moment. I've just noted just what a few of us have been saying here. 
So I think there's kind of four key steps maybe for 2023. Connect the crises, coordinate the action, deliver a long-term solution and share the benefits. Right? And on okay, that, and on that we're going to set up a new political party in the Students' Union Bar after this. Thank you. <laughs> I love that. And I, I've got one to add to that because I think we've been talking a lot about political action when we think about national government, but I think there is a huge, huge opportunity to do more locally. Because if you are trying to connect the dots, if you are trying to bring together different organisations, if you're trying to engage with communities and citizens, local is the place to do that. It's the place to reach people. It's the place to create those connections around Mm. stuff that people in that local area care about and that matters to them and fits in with their context, whether it's social or geographical or, you know, based on the resources they have available. Local authorities are hugely underfunded and they have so much so much that they could give if we could only support them a little bit better and that doesn't just mean financial support i also think the different range of skills between some local authorities and other capacity the, the, their ability to respond but if we only look at some of the work that's been done um you know i think i think about the prospering from the energy revolution program that our podcast is is very you know gratefully funded through you know look at some of the projects that have been implemented they have delivered so much in four years in their small areas we need to be taking the learnings from that we need to make sure we're understanding that we're not just doing stuff trialing it and move on we need to be learning and we need to be translating that and doing better and iterating and improving and local is the place to do that and we need to be empowering local actors to actually start delivering so that is like that's that. my uh, that's on my that's wish your list. Pitch. Okay, you got my vote as well. So I've got a problem because I can't vote for two people at once. Um, right. <laughs> so where all of our Christmas presents will go to the local authorities. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't your husband work for the local Great authority? Reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I may not have to take any kindness on it. Okay, this is awkward. Right. Well, listen. That that brings us neatly to uh, I think um, a little in. In-house entertainment, I think it's fair to say. We haven't done this for a little while, Fraser. Future or fiction is back. It is big. Uh, (laughs) Good way to end 2022. Drum roll, please, Dave. Given you haven't done this for so long, Fraser, you are probably going to have to outline some some of our new listeners we've picked up uh, along the way. What on earth is it? And why is it good? I'll need to dredge up from the back of my mind uh, what oh, the introduction to this is. You have to remind us all the rules. Anyway. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it seems fitting, actually. You know, George Michael's back at number one for Christmas and we've rolled out Future or Fiction again. Yeah. Um, so, Future or Fiction for the uninitiated, which I'm sure is everyone by now because we haven't done it in about a year, is a game where I pitch a new invention or a new energy-related thing to our esteemed panellists and they have to decide if it's the future, aka it's real, or if I've uh, invented it in some dark, horrible pocket in the back of my recess. <laughs> There's a lot goes on in it. So, this festive future or fiction, our invention, is called The Naughty List. That is The Naughty List. So we've all heard stories about how if children are naughty throughout the year, Santa will leave them a lump of coal in their stockings instead of toys or sweets. But how about this? To support people struggling with their energy this winter, certain European governments are helping people living off the gas grid by sending them coal to heat their homes. Do we think it's the future? Do we think it's real? Or do we think it's fiction? Oh, goodness. And that was certain European 
Certain. Certain. Yes. Okay. Normal. I also think I misinterpreted that. So it's it's not it's people living off, so not on the gas grid. Not on the gas grid. I was like, people living off the gas grid. I was thinking of like <laughs> methanophiles. <laughs> Things eating them. Yeah. If, if, if this is, if this is, well, whether it's true or false, I can imagine, I well, know if it's fiction, I can imagine this being cooked up by your friends and yourselves in, in the down, post, down at the public, off grid, because now you're in, in four fur and, and I guess you've got yeah. folks off grid. I actually, I, I, what I would you just... like for Christmas? A bag of coal. <laughs> Genuinely, please. I actually uh, read this on a leaked memo from the Conservative Party, um, their last round of focus groups. (laughs) 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 What would win vote? (laughs) Right, well, what do we think, team? Who wants to lead? Becky. Oh, just don't look at me. I'm on the video. That's not fair. Yeah, well, we're looking Um, at you so so you're not Googling at home. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I can assure you I'm not Googling, but oh, dear me. Like... I really hope that this isn't true because it would be absolutely savage. So I'm living with my in-laws at the moment and they have um, they have a fireplace and they, you know, have in years gone past used coal to on the fireplace. But this year it's actually too expensive so they can't buy any yeah, coal this year so they're burning wood. So it's very expensive. I can imagine it would be a very, you know, much appreciated gift for people that simply can't afford to heat their homes. God, I really hope it's not true, though. So I'm, I'm going to be... I feel I've been negative enough on this podcast already, so I'm going to try and be positive and optimistic and say that it's fiction. Okay, so that's one for fiction. I'm going to go with the world in which we live in these days. This seems strange enough to be true. And I think there are certain Eastern European countries where coal is still a big part of the energy mix, and so it's probably got quite a lot of it just to ship out to people who are living off-grid. So unfortunately, yeah, I think it might be true. Is this an item of coal? A a, a lump of coal? I don't think it's like actual Santa overnight into the, into the stockings of <laughs> the fireplace. Not uh, coal in what? a stocking, no. specifically. Hop down the chimney and sprinkle just a handful of nuts. That might get a little bit too <laughs> But it is like an offering of coal to say Merry Christmas. Yeah, you're off, you're, you're off, off grid, grid, you can't afford. Coal is expensive this time of year in general help people through. It's probably quite good if you're first footing as well, right? If you do that in, the, in your Eastern European or your European country of choice, you know, to yeah. take a lump of coal, you could see more pals that way, I guess, as well. That's it, yeah. Share your coal. Yes. So, I mean, a, a couple of years ago we did, I'm, I sometimes stay in Bothies um, in the Scottish Highlands and, and if you take coal, that it, I mean, goodness me, it keeps you warm. Yeah, yeah. Like, it really keeps uh-huh. you warm. So I can also imagine it's a very welcome gift. But I, I have to, I've struggled. I'm a very optimistic person, but I've struggled to remain optimistic talking about <laughs> the year past and the future. So I'm on Becky's side. I'm like, do you know what? Just for my own mental health and well-being, I have to believe that this is not true it's fiction okay more for fiction. Two, right so Matt. i mean I, I i either can yeah right so uh, well not the d- casting vote sadly because if i go for fact it's too all um i think it is fact because i'm going to be a real pen in the arse here fraser i'm afraid um i'm going to say that it is by default fact because they will be giving cash no, 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 no! You're you're trying to be smart about this. Well, no, what? No, no, no! Hear me out. Hear me out. I know you're actually saying coal. I know Yeah, but what I'm saying is, by by extension, this is the logic. Some some civil servants and ministers somewhere have gone to this, even in the UK, and said, "Well, if we give them cash in off-grid homes, they're going to be able to heat their homes. They're probably going to heat their homes with coal, and we're okay with that." 
And I think if that logic is happening here, I think it's probably happening in other European countries. And you didn't say whether European Union or not as well. So anyway, that's a separate thing. Oh, Matt, thing you are overthinking the, this. Do you well, need a graph? Do you need some time to a, put a graph together? It's been a, it's been a long year. Um, Becky, Becky, I can feel, I'm confident that I've gotten, I've got whatever he says now, I've gotten. Well, I'm, to I'm, I'm going fact. I'm going fact. It's too all. It's on a knife edge. Too all. Anybody, last minute, Matt? Famously, last minute, sure you don't want to? No, I can't think of any good puns about cold. So no more. <laughs> Go ahead. The answer is... Fiction. You'll be very well, glad to know. To my knowledge, at least, I didn't that's investigate every country's energy policy, but I couldn't find any examples of it when I dreamt it up. I dare say the Conservative Party did consider it as part of their support for this winter, but no, there is no current examples that we're aware of on the pod of Santa delivering coal to support people. I I do worry what goes on in your mind sometimes, Fraser. Oh, we all do. I like that one a lot. Well done, Fraser. Brilliant. Okay, well, I think that concludes our our chat. So thank you to the guests. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure. It has. Thank you to everyone. This has been amazing. I'm so sad that I couldn't be in the studio with you, but absolutely thrilled that you've been able to uh, to beam me in live uh, to, to join in today. Um, just to say, you know, you've been listening to Local Zero and if you haven't already, make sure you do go and find us and follow us on social media. We are at Local Zero Pod on Twitter, but I think we may be more involved in LinkedIn next year. So make sure you find us more wherever you can on. find us. <laughs> yes. I've put in, invested a lot of time to Maybe try and do that migration already. <laughs> Thanks to Mr. Musk. And uh, and of course, you know, if it all goes down pan, you can always email us, localzeropod at gmail.com. We love hearing from everyone. And, uh, and please remember, do also leave us a review. Subscribe to the pod. Make sure you subscribe and then you'll get all our wonderfully optimistic 2023 episodes delivered straight to your device. Um, and please do leave us a review. Give us five stars. It helps us spread the word and we'll be forever grateful. But until next time, have Merry Christmas. Merry Happy Christmas. New Year. And uh, goodbye for now. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Thanks, folks. Bye. Produced by Bespoken Media.